Hello again, and welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear with an emphasis on empowering you, me, and we the people to an activist response. My name is Libby Halady, and the reason that I do this podcast is that I was one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened. This program is my citizen activist response in the wake of Fukushima to lend my voice to the growing anti-nuclear movement worldwide. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, 2011, day 228 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th, and here is the latest nuclear news. Uh, This information is just in today that a new study by an international team of researchers estimates the admissions of radioactive gas xenon-133 and the aerosol-bound nuclide cesium-137 from uh, Fukushima Daiichi is much higher than originally predicted. In other words, uh, at this point, it looks like it is double the level of Chernobyl, meaning it is the largest that has ever existed in history. Now, This is the, okay, I've got that information out. There's strong evidence that the emissions started immediately on March 11th after the big earthquake. Not after the tsunami, but after the earthquake. Of the cesium-137 which was released, about 20% of the cesium was deposited on Japanese territory, while about 80% was deposited in the water, the seawater, where it is still circulating. The study was conducted by an international team of researchers from Norway, Vienna, Spain, and the United States. Now, further news on Fukushima. It appears that reactors 5 and 6 are now in crisis because they're finding cesium outside release points up 1,000% in recent days. This is according to local Hitachi engineers who are coming in to help at the uh, stricken plant. Even though everyone pays attention to reactors 1 to 4, actually reactors 5 and 6 are currently in crisis. This is according to a Fukushima local who has a friend working inside the reactors. Uh, This story appeared initially in Fukushima Diary, which is a source I'm going to be going back to several times during the course of this podcast. Now, just a few days after this information leaked out, you should pardon the expression about reactors 5 and 6, TEPCO released new data about reactors 5 and 6. And based on that information, Mochizuki, who is the person who does uh, Fukushima Diary, reports that these two reactors are in crisis. Um, The October 23rd document shows a comparison of how much cesium was measured in the water release point of the reactors over the past 25 days, and over the past few days, cesium levels have increased 10 times. Not a good sign. Now, Greenpeace has been testing seafood samples in Japan. They've been buying them from several different stores in eastern Japan and report that 34 of 60 seafood samples had radioactive cesium-134 and 137 in them. Now, the Japanese – now, this is according to Greenpeace. They noted that the Japanese standard for cesium in food is allowable up to 500 becquerels per kilogram. Now, that compares to 150 becquerels per kilogram, which was the limit in Ukraine after Chernobyl. So in Japan, they are allowing more than three times the amount of cesium to still be allowable. 
According to Wakao Hanaoka of Greenpeace Japan, he said, while the samples are well below the 500 becquerel per kilogram limit set by the authorities, the contaminated seafood still represents a health risk, especially to pregnant women and children, and it is being distributed over a wide area. Now, in the Tokyo area, people are discussing the yellowish residue that in late March were, uh, was being reported to the Japanese Meteorological Agency and local governments, a yellowish residue found in gardens and elsewhere in the Kanto area. Now, the residents apparently feared at the time that it was a radioactive substance from the crippled nuclear power plant, but it turned out to be pollen from the Kanto region, and they were told, go about your business, it's not a problem. However, as of yesterday, October 24th, the Forestry Agency of Japan will begin checking for radioactive substances in cedar pollen in the Fukushima prefecture as early as next month, as according to a report in the Daily Yomiri. According to the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, wind can carry cedar pollen more than 200 kilometers, approximately 150, 160 miles. It is highly likely that pollen from Fukushima Prefecture reaches the Tokyo metropolitan area. So in other words, last spring during the uh, worst of the disaster or the immediacy of the disaster, people were told, ah, it's just pollen. And now they're starting to, um, the government is starting to research whether that pollen is in and of itself radioactive. Would have been nice if they had done this about eight months ago. Now again from Tokyo, there is a Dr. Naoki Tsuji. Uh, he is testing the fingernails of Tokyo citizens for radioactive material. This is another report from Fukushima Diary. The doctor published data that shows the detection of uranium and zirconium, which are part of nuclear fuel rods. Cesium and strontium were also measured. Now, the same doctor once tried the same test for people in Fukushima, but the result was terrifying, according to Mochizuki. Some of the materials went over the limit of the measurement, he said. Only a tiny part of what is taken into the body comes out to the nail or urine. And he concludes, we, meaning the people, are becoming nuclear fuel rods. Uh, one of the things I like about that site is that he does not pull his punches. Now, another piece of news from, uh, from the Fukushima area, that 7% of the residents living in temporary units for victims of what they are calling the Great East J Japanese Earthquake um, this is in Miyagi Prefecture. 7% uh, of the residents have developed blood clots in their legs. This is a story that also appeared in the Daily Yomiuri. Um, these blood clots are in calf veins of residents in their 40s to 80s in five separate housing complexes in the city. Uh, they either had swelling of a vein caused by a clot uh, 20% had developed varicose veins. This is just in the period of time since Fukushima happened. If blood clots flow to the lungs, they can block pulmonary arteries, which can result in death. The deep vein thrombosis also raises risks of brain infarction and other serious medical conditions. Just another way that Fukushima is continuing to find new ways to endanger health. Now, you may be wondering why Japan ever decided on nuclear energy to begin with, considering they'd had two nuclear bombs dropped on them. And uh, there's a new book called by Laura E. Hine called Fueling Growth, the Energy Revolution and Economic Policy in Post-War Japan. And at that time, Japan was concerned with increasing their energy so that they could uh, do 
the kind of manufacturing and growth and economic recovery that they wanted. President Dwight Eisenhower of the U.S. had a solution called Atoms for Peace. It was a program to use U.S. plutonium to provide nuclear fuel for its allies. Now, the plan had the advantage of making allies dependent on technology from corporate giants General Electric and Westinghouse, both based here in the United States. This is according to Michael Donnelly, a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. He studies Japan's nuclear program. And he goes on to say, I can't believe that any decision of this sort would not involve consideration that nuclear energy programs would benefit American manufacturers. It would also keep the allies tied in to the United States, keep them in an allied position, and starts to look suspiciously like the nuclear industry is creating foreign policy based on if we're not in touch with each other and on good terms, um, you're not going to be able to get the spare parts you need for your reactor. Oops, that could be a problem. Anyway, that's just my spin on it. I'd like to move right now into the interview for today. I'm very excited to be interviewing Michael Keegan. Now, he is the chair of a group called Nuclear Free Great Lakes. He is a 30-year veteran of the anti-nuclear and social justice movements, where he has led successful campaigns to stop nuclear waste dumps, nuclear power plants, incinerators, bomb tests, landfills, radioactive shipments on the Great Lakes, and more. This man has been doing a lot when certainly I was not paying attention, and I'm grateful for the work you did. Michael, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hello, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Terrific. So, first of all, why don't you orient us? I'm on the West Coast, and that's kind of been uh, an, an inadvertent bias in the information we've had. But with you being in the Midwest, what is the nuclear situation in and around the Great Lakes? Well, if you put your right hand out uh, and you look at it, look at the palm, down in the right-hand corner will be uh, Detroit. Uh, I'm in Monroe, Michigan, just south of Detroit. And it's the home of the Fermi-1 nuclear reactor, which had a core meltdown in 1966. And then there's now a Fermi-2. But uh, after Chernobyl, um, we started to look up and down the lakes, around the lakes, and saw that there were many reactors. It turns out there are 37 nuclear reactors that are in the watershed of the Great Lakes Basin. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea it was that bad. 20% of the world's surface fresh water. Um, yeah. Uh, and an additional 23 that are just west of the basin, but the dominant wind patterns, weather patterns, would carry them over. So they are in the airshed of the basin. So the Great Lakes Basin, 20% of the world's surface fresh water, is in jeopardy because of nuclear power. And I have to be from a home uh, in Monroe, uh, which is home to the uh, also home to the Fermi-1 nuclear power plant. And as I mentioned, in 1966, they had a core meltdown. But the... Uh, when I review the archival documents that were once classified top secret, they're now declassified, mm -hmm. I learned that the objective in the history of the Fermi-1 was to produce weapons-grade plutonium. That's what it was about, producing weapons material. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it had a meltdown. But uh, in their wisdom, they chose to pursue another nuclear power plant, uh, which they uh, named the Fermi-2. And that's had a pretty poor track record. Um, on Christmas Day of 93, that thing blew apart. Uh, it sent off earthquake uh, monitoring stations um, when it threw uh, turbine blades and something called a turbine missile. Um, and that ended up dumping 2 million gallons of slightly radioactive water into Lake Erie. 
But um, up and down the lakes, it, every aspect of the nuclear power industry is there, and uh, they are dumping into the lakes. I mean, they're allowed to under what the regulator calls a below permissible level. By their license, they're allowed to release certain mm -hmm. amounts of gaseous mm -hmm. liquid and solids leak and so on. Um, so uh, we have a coalition of uh, groups, uh, three provinces and eight states who work together and exchange documents and information, try to empower ourselves and to uh, work for an accelerated phase out of nuclear power. And um, over in Fukushima, we're witnessing a, a disaster that's un unheralded. Um, and we see that 80% of that is going into the Ocean. Right, that's going into the seawater, and there are maps showing exactly how far that is spread so far. It's it's very frightening. What environmental impact um, has been tracked around the Great Lakes? I remember when I lived in Chicago, there were die-offs of alewives and things like that. Nobody knew why. I'm wondering if there have been any um, uh, ecological problems that could be traced directly back to the reactors. Well. On the Canadian side, um, the reactor design uh, produces as a byproduct a lot of tritium. Mm -hmm. So the water is tritiated at a very high rate um, on Lake Ontario and uh, Lake Huron from uh, the Canadian reactors. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's already a change in the radioactivity of the lake water, and of course, the water doesn't stay in the lake. I mean, it, it, it spreads, it cycles. So um, is that also contaminating the other lakes? Yes, it is. It, but the, the cycling is, is uh, for instance, uh, Lake Michigan, I believe, is 200 years. Um, so it, it, they, are, they are long, I think, long periods. I think Lake Erie is 73 years. So it's, it's a long time. Um, but uh, they also have uh, high-level nuclear waste stored right on the shore of the lake. Um, this what what is the essentially the spent fuel for the reactor? It is they call it spent, but it's a it's a million times more radioactive when it comes out of the reactor. Mm -hmm. And now it's stored in uh, concrete silos uh, just uh, on the shore of the lakes. And if there were a an earthquake, a flood, a tsunami, a, a siege on the lakes, they could potentially uh, pull those casks into into Lake Michigan. Um, and there are plans to do it on uh, Lake Erie. It, actually, it's already being done on Lake Erie at the Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant. Um, many people may have heard about that one. That had a hole in the reactor head the size of a football, um, six inches deep, all the way down to three-sixteenths of an inch stainless steel liner. That was the only thing that prevented uh, Toledo from being a Fukushima-type accident. Was that the one where um, they had neglected to do the safety checks, and then when they had to put this new cap on it, they went, "Oh, well, maybe we better take a look at it," and that's where they discovered it. Well, they were there were boron leaks. Um, several reactors had leaks around the what's called penetration welds where, that go into the reactor. Um, water comes up through the reactor; it's, it's it has boric acid in it and it actually eats away the metal. Well, this had been going on at Davis-Bessey for probably a decade. And, oh, they keep deferring the inspection, and, oh, no, we'll wait till next time, because they're, in, they're not in convenient places to, to, to view. So the, uh, the regulators said to them in the fall, look, every, every nuclear plant of this design needs to be shutting it down and doing the inspection. And Davis-Bessey stonewalled 
for about an additional three months. Um, and the NRC would not force them to shut down. Mm-hmm. And when they finally did uh, shut down, when they did do the inspection, they found it a huge six-inch deep, uh, six inches across a whole pit that had been eaten away by the boric acid. And now the stainless steel was bulging through that opening. And so very yep. narrowly averted a, a nuclear catastrophe. Yeah, I heard Dan Hirsch talk about that two weeks ago in the hearings down in um, San Onofre that were taking place down in um, uh, San Clemente, California. Um, it's very frightening because, it's, you know, they're unsafe enough and they're not even bothering to enforce the safety standards that they are mandated to do. Um, because, of course, it costs too much and money is more important than people. Put that in quotes. It's not my belief. Um, so in terms of where you are with your campaigns right now, what is the current focus for the work you and your group in coordination with the others are doing around the Great Lakes? Well, there are proposals for a few new nuclear plants in the Great Lakes. Hmm. And uh, one of those proposals is for a Fermi 3 in my home community uh, to build a new plant there. Um, up in uh, Ontario, there are plans for Darlington uh, additional reactors there um, and in New York at Nine Mile Point. Uh, so we're focused on uh, preventing any new reactors from coming online. Um, we're focused on trying to secure the high-level nuclear waste, which sits on the shore unguarded. Um, we're trying to force them to build bunker system around it uh, to harden the site. To, the, we're calling it HOSS, Hardened On-Site Storage. Um, we're working to prevent the shipping of the high-level nuclear components, uh, such as the steam generators, on the Great Lakes. There's a harebrained hair, hair scheme um, by Bruce Power, who was up on the uh, Bruce Peninsula, to ship uh, the steam generators, 64 of them total. They weigh 100 tons each. They want to ship them out through the Georgian Bay, down through Lake Huron, down through St. Clair Lake, down through the Detroit River, down through Lake Erie, out Lake Ontario, through the St. Lawrence Seaway, over to Sweden to recycle radioactive metal. Now, it's not recycling. What it's doing, it's relabeling poisonous product. Right. It, you know, it's, it, it's moving it from the left hand to the right hand, but it's not doing right. anything with it. And it, So you're saying that these turbines, all of which are highly radioactive, they are proposing that they're going to be shipping these behemoths through heavily populated areas in this great watershed that is, you said, it was how much of the surface fresh water in the world, 25%? 25% of the world's surface fresh water. But these, this is not considered high-level waste. Inside these steam generators is plutonium. Actually, about uh, 40% of the radioactivity is plutonium. Mm-hmm. It's not in huge amounts, but you don't need it in huge amounts if those if if the containers are breached, if the ship sinks. Um, there's been no environmental assessment. There's no been no programmatic programmatic environmental impact statement on the U.S. side. Um, the lakes are being used as, as a system of uh, transport, um, and uh, w- as these plants age and become decommissioned and components need to be replaced, we can't be shipping this stuff on the lakes. Um, so th- those are some of the ca- campaigns we're currently in, um, and uh, we are appealing to our rep- uh, respective governments everywhere we are, you know, city, local, region, province, state, 
national, so on. Um, but this is ludicrous. I mean, you know, you, you look at Japan, oh, how could they be build these nuclear reactors on all these active earthquake faults. That's what we've got. You know, in California, the joke is, if you want to find an earthquake fault you never knew was there, build a nuclear reactor. It'll be right underneath or close close by. I've heard that said, and it's true. Over, over here in the Midwest, uh, they've built these things right on the shore of, of the lakes. And nuclear power uses a tremendous amount of water, the yeah. water per uh, energy unit. And... Um, so what are we doing? You know, what are we jeopardizing uh, our, our lakes, our very life? I mean, water is life. And if that's gone, we're we're done. So uh, we're trying to empower people and uh, to phase these things out as fast as we can. We've had some successes, um, but these are entrenched uh, cartels. They enjoy advanced monopoly status. Uh, the political economy of it is they, they run the state. You know, whatever state they're in, they they're usually among the largest taxpayers. So they uh, they call the tune, um, and uh, we need our politicians to uh, stand up. And uh, but uh, they like that pack money, and uh, they they don't like saying no to the utility. But people power is what we need to get them with. And uh, and the thing is, we have you know what what are we jeopardizing this for? I mean, renewables of wind and solar are ready to go, and they're they're springing up. But as I say, these cartels do not want it on their grid. They don't want it. You know, they want. They still consider it their grid. You know. Mm-hmm. So. so let me ask you, Michael. Uh, what kind of strategies have? Because a lot of activists listen to this show. Um, what kind of strategies have you found to be effective in the work that you're doing? Well, we engage in a number of strategies, but one of those is legal pursuit through. Um, the procedures called Administrative Procedures Act. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to allow for public hearings if you can raise serious contentions. So we do, but we always know that we're appealing to the king. And at the end of the day, the ruling never goes our way. But we have to exhaust all those procedures before we can go into an actual federal court and challenge them. Um, so that's that's one of the strategies we use. And, but we also utilize that process to do an educational campaign with the communities. And, you know, hopefully we'll get to that 100th monkey where we just say, hey, let's, enough of this. It's done. Stick a fork and, you know, turn it over. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, when are people going to realize that um, they've really been programmed? Um, I mean, the first time I heard nuclear referred to as clean, green, and sustainable, I think the top of my head shot off because it, it, it's absolutely the opposite of that, but if the other side controls the languaging and controls the conversation, which of course they've been attempting to do with millions in PR, all we can do is come back at a grassroots level with the truth and push that information up the uh, the mental food chain to get it into the minds of some of the more important thinkers and some of the more influential politicians. Uh, starting grassroots and starting starting locally and just repeating the information as much as we can. Let me ask you, Michael, you've been doing this work for an awfully long time, and uh, I just jumped into this arena after 30 years of being asleep, after being at Three Mile Island. Um, I just jumped in after Fukushima, and I know sometimes it takes a tremendous emotional toll. Here, you've been doing this for 30 years. How do you keep 
your balance, your sanity, your ability to keep moving forward in this and not be overcome with, with negative emotions? Well, so you should ask. On Halloween at noon, um, perhaps people have heard, there is a, a 30-foot crack found in the outside containment uh, concrete building of the Davis-Bessing nuclear plant. A 30-foot crack. Now, where is that one located? That is located near Toledo, Ohio. A 30-foot crack in, in – in, this is in the containment building? It is a containment building, uh, a, a concrete building, um, which is considered part of the containment. Oh, my, okay. All right. So we're talking about noon on, on Halloween, did you say? At noon on Halloween, we will be doing street theater in front of the Toledo Edison, and um, – uh, King Kong will be spackling the crack in the Davis-Bessey nuclear reactor. <laughs> uh, and there will be flying pigs there. And it's, so we're billing it as I have a scream. And we have a scream. We have many issues, uh, technical issues we're going to raise regarding the Davis-Bessey. Um, so uh, everything in balance, uh, as, as deep and dark it is, as it is, you know, uh, these issues, uh, you work with the most wonderful people. Uh, bright people with live minds and live hearts. I'm lifting lines from Harry Chapin here, but uh, it, it is true. Uh, you, your life is enriched. Your life has meaning. Uh, you're working towards a purpose. Uh, yes, it takes a great toll, but uh, the rewards are, are humongous. This is what I've been experiencing, too, but I like to ask activists because um, I just know that especially newbies to this process can sometimes be overwhelmed simply by learning some of the basic facts of it. Uh, I spoke at TEDx Pasadena this past weekend and saw people deeply shaken by what I shared in just 18 minutes. So uh, it takes people a while to adjust, but it's good to know what the survival mechanisms are. Is, let's find out if there's anybody on the line who can actually get through to ask a, a question of Michael Keegan, who is the chair of Nuclear Free Great Lakes. Uh, does anybody have a question for him? And admittedly, there is a bit of a, a tech difficulty on this today because uh, I do know some people are trying to talk and uh, not getting through. I got some uh, Facebook IMs from them. Uh, Michael, let there's, me there's ask you. There's a dog howling in my backyard. Pardon? There's a dog howling in my backyard. Does that count? Um, I don't know. I'll take that as an omen. My dog howls too, but she's not allowed to during the podcast. So uh, let me ask you, Michael, what is the biggest challenge you currently face and how might we be able to help you with it? Well, uh, I'm involved in a uh, what's called a 2206 petition. Um, it's being spearheaded by Beyond Nuclear. They're based in uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland. And what they're trying to do is to force uh, an investigation uh, by the regulator, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, trying to force them to follow the Atomic Energy Act and put a halt to all reactors that are the same design as the Fukushima. Mm. And unfortunately, I live in a community uh, where the Fermi-2 is the largest Fukushima design reactor in the world. The GE Mark I. Uh, GE Mark I, and this, this one in Monero happens to be the largest in the world. Um, this is a reactor design that the, the Atomic Energy Commission, the predecessor to the NRC, uh, they, they exchanged internal documents in 7072 talking about the probability of failure uh, and the containment not, not working, uh, failing was 
was a, a real concern. Um, the, the containment design was flawed from the get-go. It was just too small to contain what it was being asked to contain. Um, but rather than recall the reactors, they said they'd just phase out that model and move on to different models. And that was but in what year? They, uh, uh, that was in 70, 72. Wow, they're really moving fast on this, aren't they? Yeah. So what we're trying to do is force them to acknowledge that this reactor's design is flawed, was known to be flawed, and you're really, you know, it's, it's game of Russian roulette. And uh, uh, they're betting that uh, it's not going to happen, and things happen. You know, I hate when they take bets and it's our lives that are on the line because I'd be willing to bet that um, none of those regulators uh, and none of the executives from those power companies live anywhere in proximity to um, the immediate danger area of those nuclear power plants. Well, some some of them do. Uh, they like to put it out there as promotion. Oh, I live right, you know. Uh, but a lot of them don't, and I've heard – for instance, the, the steam generator, uh, the turbine generator at, at the Fermi 2 that blew apart Christmas Day of 93, the person who installed that back in 78 says, I, I'm not going to be anywhere near here when this thing gets started up because he knew that the turbine system was faulty. It sat in the, in the stockyard unturned. It was supposed to be rotated on a regular basis. It didn't get rotated. The thing bent under its own weight. It was known it was going to blow apart. I mean, so um, it, it's uh, it, it's hard to know, but um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, Michael, um, what is the website that you have? And again, how would a listener to Nuclear Hot Seat be able to respond to you or or uh, support you in some way? Well, I work with a couple national groups. Um, Beyond Nuclear has a, a extensive web page. And Nuclear Information Resource Service mm -hmm. has a, a great web page. Um, and they've got archival documents and links to some of the stuff I was talking about. Uh, up here, uh, we use a Don't Waste Michigan web page as kind of our local statewide uh, group. And um, so I, I post on other web pages. I, I don't have one up. Uh, I don't have a staff. Uh, I do what I can every day, but that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's all I can do. Right. We just want to know where we might be able to find you if we wish to uh, communicate or send support or make a donation, anything at all like that. Okay. Well, any donation could be sent to uh, uh, could be sent to Beyond Nuclear and earmark it for um, uh, No Fermi or Don't Waste Michigan. Um, and th those uh, web pages have uh, have. Um, uh, information on how to do that. Mm -hmm. So just just earmark a contribution towards the Fermi or Don't Waste Michigan, and that's the most expedient way. Terrific. So one final question. Will you email me or, or call me with a report on how that action goes at noon on, on Halloween? Because I think that would be a great story to be able to share. Would you be willing to do that? I sure would. I think it's going to be a howl. I think so, too. Document it terrifically. Send us the information. I would love to link to it from uh, our, our, our Facebook page. Michael, uh, I look forward to speaking with you again before too long, uh, but thank you so much for being on the program today. Okay, very good. Thank you much. Yeah, Michael Keegan is chair for Nuclear Free Great Lakes and a tremendous repository of information. We will be talking with him again 
in the future. Coming back to the nuclear news, of which there was a ton this week. Sweden, there was a fire at a Swedish nuclear plant, and then the reactor was shut down for safety reasons. You think? Ah, it was an oil fire in a nuclear reactor. Just our two favorite pollutants in one place at one time. Now, in Canada, new evidence has emerged that the radiation in Canada was worse than Canadian officials ever let on. Uh, this after Fukushima, and according to Canada's largest urban weekly, the Georgia Strait, which is a Vancouver pa- uh, paper, uh, public officials in Japan and Canada alike jumped straight into Chernobyl-style damage control mode, dismissing any worries about impacts, writes the Strait's Alex Roslin. Now, a, ca- a Health Canada monor- monitoring station in Calgary detected radioactive material in rainwater that exceeded Canadian guidelines. This during the first during the month of March. Okay, so that was in Calgary, and it exceeded Canadian guidelines. But the Canadian government officials didn't disclose the high radiation levels to the public. Instead, they repeatedly insisted that fallout drifting to Canada was negligible and posed no health concerns. Meanwhile, uh, at the same time, radioactive iodine levels also spiked in March in Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Ottawa. Now, these levels did not exceed Canadian guidelines, but the level discovered in Ottawa did surpass the more stringent ceiling for drinking water used by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So the radiation, of course, was uh, it was bad in the U.S., but it was fine in Canada because everybody knows that radiation does obey the laws of international geography and countries' borders. Moving on to the United States, okay. Here we are, 220 days after Fukushima, it has been recorded that radiation levels in San Francisco area milk remains above the EPA's maximum contaminant level of cesium-137. The cesium is continuing to rise um, and has been since last August. This all according to the Nuclear Engineering Department at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, This was store-bought organic milk from the San Francisco Bay Area with a best buy date of October 10, 2011. Lots of bad news for women and children here in the United States. Um, Our friends at uh, Nuclear Information Resource Center Service, excuse me, NERS, N-I-R-S, which Michael Keegan also mentioned, uh, they have a new briefing paper out, Atomic Radiation is More Harmful to Women. A PDF available if you go to the NERS site. We also have a link on Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook. In part, it says, a woman is at significantly higher risk of suffering and dying from radiation-induced cancer than a man who gets the same dose of ionizing radiation. This is news because data in the report on the biological effects of ionizing radiation published in 2006 by the National Academy of Sciences has been underreported. It is more often acknowledged that children are at higher risk of disease and death from radiation, but it is rarely pointed out that the regulation of radiation and nuclear activity worldwide ignores the disproportionately greater harm to both women and children. NERS.org has that report for you to read. Ah, Now, also, low-level radiation from accidents and tritium emissions from cooling towers mean that fewer girls are born. Uh, This is based in part by a study that was done around Chernobyl, 
where it was pointed out that the gender gap in 1987 to 2007 corresponds to approximately 440,000 theoretically missing female births. Only the female sex seems to have been affected if you go with that number. If you think that male births were, or you consider that male births were also affected at a ratio of male to female, 3 to 10, I don't understand the statistics on it. Let's just say there aren't as many females being born as males because we are more um, more vulnerable to radiation. In addition, this report, uh, background radiation is also the primary reason why women aged over 40 are advised not to have children. It's not that we're old. It's because our stocks of ova, the eggs, have not have been exposed since birth to 40 or so years of background radiation and have thereby been damaged to such an extent that an unacceptable proportion when fertilized result in congenital malformations, spontaneous abortions, or stillbirths. Another effect which was observed in Belarus is that infertility becomes uh, a risk after exposure, uh, exposure to radiation. And this exchange... In Fukushima Diary, which, uh, as I said, has turned into quite a source for the uh, anecdotal information, which I put a lot of stock in because it's where people are talking to people and where they don't get normally heard by official channels. Anyway, this is between um, two of the people we've been counting on for information, Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds and Professor Christopher Busby. Uh, Arnie wrote on October 23rd to Christopher, uh, where the hell are the stillbirths, where are the deformities and live births? I have no evidence that the data is being suppressed. What is going on? And Busby, who is based in Japan, said, who knows? No one has any data, or if there is data, who believes it? And how would you interpret it without knowing the base population from which it is obtained? That's all statistical conversation, but here we go. In addition, we are early to find any effects. After Chernobyl, the effects began nine months after the exposures. Also, there will be ultrasound scans and abortions for any deformed children. Also, there will be miscarriages. The fact that you have no evidence that the data are being suppressed doesn't mean it isn't. That's why I wanted to set up an independent epidemiological survey, but no one took it up. Now, now they will have a bogus set of data, just like after Chernobyl. First they deny, then they lie, then they spin, then they cover up, cover up. And then on a slow news day, you might get a little bit of the truth leaked out. It's very depressing. Here in the U.S., um, we are getting reports out of MIT's Center for Advanced Nuclear Energy Systems that... Um, they're saying that while the Fukushima disaster has resulted in calls for cancellation of nuclear construction projects and reassessments of plant license extensions, which might lead to a global slowdown of the nuclear enterprise, that decision-making in the immediate aftermath of a major crisis is often influenced by emotion. And would you please tell me why that is a bad thing? Emotion counts, guys. Okay, this is out of MIT's Center for Advanced Nuclear Engineering Systems. There is a punchline to this story. Um, they're talking about the fact that uh, whether an accident of Fukushima, which is so far beyond design basics, really warrants an, oh, a major overhaul of current nuclear safety regulations and practices. Well, if it does, wonders the authors, when is safe safe enough? Where do we draw the line? 
we draw the line around nuclear power plants and say everything inside this line has to go. Everything outside of this line is human life and must be preserved. How's that? This does qualify for the Numbnuts Award of the Week. And here's the punchline. MIT Center for Advanced Nuclear Engineering Systems has a chair that is funded by TEPCO. In other words, you want to keep the chair, you got it. You want to keep the money that funds the chair, guess what? We want you to say some things on our behalf. Not that anybody ever says that out loud, but that's, there's plenty of pressure to push in that direction. Uh, truly numbnuts. Okay, enough of the depressing stuff. Let's get into something dealing with holistic healing, which I always like to include. And uh, that is, uh, in poking around online, I found out that apple pectin, is uh, very good for getting radiation out of the body. It has the ability to sweep out radioactive dust particles from the intestinal tract and was used extensively after the Chernobyl nuclear plant meltdown to reduce the load of radioactive cesium in children. Uh, pectin is uh, usually sold in powdered form, and most people are familiar with it in the making of jams and jellies. But it has been uh, proven to remove heavy metals and even radioactive strontium from the digestive tract, and that taking apple pectin proved to significantly prevent damage from radiation exposure. Uh, in addition, uh, the, Sw the Swiss Medical Weekly published a report in 2004 uh, confirming that apple pectin was seen to reduce the cesium uptake in Ukrainian children after Chernobyl. Uh, actually, their uh, radiation level was reduced by 62% in just one month. So um, there's no harm to taking pectin. It is water-soluble. Uh, you can have it in, um, you can put it in water. You can have it in the morning. You can start with one teaspoon and build up to a tablespoon a day. And um, it's a food product, so it's probably not going to harm you. The one thing is you really do want to um, be drinking a lot of water with it. So in the activist news, uh, we do have um, some good information. Um, first of all, you know that there were a series of, if you've been following the podcast, there have been a series of um, uh, meetings taking place on San Onofre nuclear power stations um, with the city of San Clemente, which is just three miles away from those stations. And uh, what has been decided is that the San Clemente City Council is going to push for removal of waste from the San Onofre nuclear plant and the completion of the Avenida La Pata connection to San Juan Capistrano. Uh, that is a, an evacuation route to increase the number of routes out of, uh, out of San Clemente in the case of a nuclear disaster. Now, the council has virtually no jurisdiction over San Onofre, but they unanimously decided to focus its lobbying efforts on the removal of spent fuel waste from San Onofre and speed the uh, gap closure. Apparently, there's a, a missing section of this uh, freeway uh, to provide the evacuation route. Uh, and they also said further that they hope to recruit other city governments and the Orange Boardy Orange County Board of Supervisors in pressuring Washington for solutions. Uh, the permanent waste storage has been a political football nationwide, and there is no permanent storage solution on the horizon for the several thousand pounds of radioactive waste stored at the San Onofre site. 
According to Jean Stone, who's with Residents Organized for a Clean Environment, Rose, uh, one of the groups that work to bring about the meetings with the city council, uh, quote, this is a win. Now to go to other cities in Orange County to get them to take action as well. And uh, there's a new post available. Uh, this is put together by a wonderful activist from the San Francisco area, Roger Harried. Um, the Freedom of Information Act got a lot of the um, uh, materials that went between the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and our government and uh, officials in Japan in the days immediately after Fukushima. And uh, when these documents were petitioned for and released by the Freedom of Information Act, they were all over the place. You couldn't make sense. You couldn't find stuff. You didn't know what one thing led to another thing. And there are activists around the country who have been working to put them into a searchable database and to make sense out of the material and start to distill out what they're actually saying. And uh, there is now available uh, an amazing document on energy.net.org forward slash blog forward slash 2011. And uh, this is putting together the information that proves that um, some information has been overlooked in the telling of the story of Fukushima. Like the explosion in Reactor 1 on, that took place the day after Fukushima on March 12th as a result of a 6.4 magnitude aftershock epicentered less than 30 miles away. Uh, the explosion is referenced, but the aftershock is not. There's specific information and a lot more on that link. Again, it's at energy-net.org forward slash blog forward slash 2011. And I do have a link up on the Facebook page of Nuclear Hot Seat. And this thought that I would like to leave you with. This is from uh, Muto Ryoko's speech at an anti-nuclear demonstration um, to 60,000 citizens of Japan. This took place on September 19th. We've just gotten the translation. Here's what he had to say. We need to imagine the world existing on the other side of the outlet that we casually insert our plug into. Think about how our convenience and prosperity are built on discrimination and sacrifice. Nuclear power plants exist on the other side. Humans are just one species. Is there any other species that robs their own kind's future? I want to live decently in harmony with this beautiful planet Earth. While carefully conserving energy, I want to, I want to pursue a rich, creative life. How can we create a world completely different from one with nuclear power? That is the question. Let's all keep looking for the answer. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 25th, 2011. You can find us and links to previous programs by going to NuclearHotSeat.com or on the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat group page. We are also up on iTunes and you can subscribe for free so you never need miss a single update. This is Libby Halevi. I can't even get my name right today. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep. Be well. Be safe. I'll speak with you next week. Bye-bye.